Uh, I'm going to continue with our series that uh, Dr. Andre started last week called Revival Culture. How many of us were here last week? Last week. How awesome was that? Didn't you enjoy that? Eh? So if you weren't here, you can get the message on our website, okay? Under uh, podcast, you get that message. It's there, so well recorded. I want to continue building on what he started, and, um, and I hope to do justice to the series like he started. Uh, I'm going to be sharing from uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, then we're going to move to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to give an introduction to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is, uh, was written together with, with Luke by one author, um, and um, was written by, by Luke, who was, some scholars say that he was writing to Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus, who some assume may have been a high Roman official who wanted an account of really what happened to Jesus. Uh, but other people also say because Theophilus is a combination of two names. One is Theos, which is God, and Phyllis, which is from Philio, which means love. So he could have been talking to a people who were called the lovers of God, or Christians in other words. And so Luke was writing and giving them an account of what really happened to Jesus and what happened to the disciples because their lives were changed, they were turned upside down. Uh, the people that were once afraid and fishermen now were preaching the gospel. And so some people were puzzled and confused and wanted to know exactly what had happened. And so Luke, who was a doctor, uh, took time to write and explaining exactly what happened. Now, obviously, as he was explaining, there were some things that were so amazing that he had to find the vocabulary to explain them, which were not necessarily easy to explain. Amen. And so that brings us to this scripture, which is Acts chapter 1. This is uh, Acts chapter 1 from verse 4 to verse 8. I want to read. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had gathered, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Amen. Now, here is a story before I think I start to preach. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Uh, he says to them that, I want you to wait for me. Now, this was when they were watching him ascend into heaven. Now, he's wanting to say goodbye in away to them and say, guys, I'm going, but I'll come back. But I want you to know this. I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. I want you to wait and stay in Jerusalem. Now, this sounds like it was an easy ask. But these guys, most of them were Judeans. Most of them were from Judea. And so they weren't people from Jerusalem. And according to history and some geography, it says that 
the distance between Jerusalem and Judea was about 100 kilometers. And for those people who walked a lot, it was far. And so here Jesus is asking them to stay in Jerusalem. I said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem and don't go anywhere. Now, some of these men were married. Like Peter, the Bible says, he had a mother-in-law, which I assume he was married with a wife. Jesus comes to him, and I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine for a moment. Jesus comes to him. Now, he lives in Judea. The reason why, in fact, Peter didn't want to come to Jerusalem at first. When Jesus wanted to come to Jerusalem, Peter said, Lord, where are you going there? You're going to be killed. Now, here is Peter in Jerusalem, and Jesus is telling Peter and the other apostles, I want you to stay here and don't go anywhere else until you have received what the Father promised. Mind you, Jesus didn't tell them how long it would take them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise. But he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And I think Peter looked to the other apostles like, you know what? Jerusalem is a dangerous place for us right now. Jesus has just been crucified. These people are persecuting every single person who speaks of Jesus in this city. Why is Jesus asking us to stay here in Jerusalem? I think Peter went to his other friends and apostles and said to them, you know what? We need to go back to Jesus. Maybe this is what he means. You know, Jerusalem was the capital city of the Jewish people. And in order to rule amongst the Jewish people, you needed to be based in Jerusalem. And so some of them began to assume that, oh, Jesus, maybe this is the time he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the Jewish kingdom, and he wants us to lead with him and be officials. Maybe this is what he wants. So let's go to him and ask him. And so they came to Jesus and said, Lord, we understand that you want us to stay in Jerusalem. But we, we want to know why you want us to stay in Jerusalem. Lord, are you saying, is this the time that you're going to overthrow the kingdom? Is this the time that Peter is going to be the prime minister? Is this the time, Lord? And, and Jesus looks to them and says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And I'm thinking, Jesus, these people are families, man. They've got to explain to their wives why they're staying in Jerusalem. And it didn't make sense to them. But Jesus says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem because I know why. And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Now, if you study in the Greek, the, 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 it's two different things. One is the times and the seasons. It's, it's plural, obviously, which I like because other preachers obviously would make times as though it's a once-off that never comes back again. But the two words that I use for times and season, time is the word chronos, where we get our word you know, chronologically, okay? Which speaks of ages and eras. And then seasons is the word kairos, which speaks of an opportune time. And so Jesus is saying to them that obviously, as you're waiting, you are going to be confined to almost two realities. There's one which is obviously going to be an opportune time that you need to act and something is going to happen. But there's going to be another time which is going to be just a time, an age, or a season of something. But it's not for you to know. But at least I want you to have general knowledge. But what you should do is to wait. Which leads me to the first point 
in order for us, I believe, to experience revival, in order for us to be a people that are revival-minded, I think we've got to be a people that know how to wait on God. I think we've got to a people that, that really know how to... See, see, we are living in a time where everything is fast, where everything is so quick, and waiting on God is almost becoming synonymous to, to God saying, no, you can't have it. But these guys had to wait on God. They had to wait on God. You know, about two or three weeks ago, before the local elections were announced officially, on that Saturday evening, I was at my nephew's place. He was, he was turning 18, so he was having a small birthday party there. And I was there because he had his friends who were 17, 18. I couldn't hang out with them, so I was in the living room. <laughs> watching the news and waiting for the announcement to be made. Obviously, all of them wanted to hear the, you know, the announcement, the final announcement, and see who's won what and so forth. And so they joined in when the actual proceedings or process started. All of us thought that they would start with just announcing directly who's won what and who's going where and so forth and so on. And so when they started, they started thanking people who did this, people who did that, people, and we, just, we started grumbling and complaining, guys, you keep thanking people, just tell us who won what. <laughs> and I realized in that moment that there was a process that needed to be followed before the actual announcement was made. And that's what, that's what waiting does to us. Waiting subjects us to a process. Waiting allows us to experience the process. And it is the process that forms our character. Waiting gets us into a process, and that process teaches us how to be patient. Something so profound, Dr. Andrew mentioned last week about the story of Abraham. Sometimes, I believe, because of our inability to wait on God, instead of enjoying the blessings of our decision, we rather deal with the consequences of the prematurity of those decisions. That because it was too soon and too quickly, instead of waiting on God, now instead of enjoying the benefits of your decision, you are still dealing with the consequences of its prematurity. And God says to the disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Because I know what I am doing, wait for me. And I have seen people in my Christian life whose potential needed some time to wait. And they chose to go ahead of God. And because the muscles of their character were not developed enough to sustain the fame, they crashed. God says, wait in Jerusalem. It's important for us to know how to wait. Waiting on God. The second thing the disciples, I believe, needed to do. They needed to have unreasonable faith. There's a scripture there for waiting on God. The second one I said they needed to have an unreasonable faith. A faith that doesn't make sense. Unreasonable does not mean you're stupid. It just means it doesn't make sense to your mind. Now, if you've lived long enough, like Pastor Andrew, and you've begun to lose your hair, 
and he's waiting for grandchildren soon. I'm, I'm looking at the back there. Uh, <laughs> so if, you, if you've lived long enough, you come to a place where you understand that there are some things that will confront you in life that won't make sense. And you need a faith that doesn't make sense to confront such challenges. They needed an unreasonable faith. A faith that cannot be comprehended logically. Because how do you explain to your wife that Jesus who has just been crucified by the very people who are in Jerusalem? He's telling you to stay in Jerusalem and you don't know when you're going to go back home. Like, how do you go back to your wife? Literally, open, Man, Peter, are you a coward? Like, why do you listen to this guy? He's dead now. He's gone. They needed to have unreasonable faith. You know, sometimes you think faith is just for, for, for the uneducated. You know, sometimes you're talking to people who, who are educated and they've got, you know, they, are, they, are, they occupy big positions and, and stuff. And so people think, Faith is just for the unemployed. Or faith is just for the uneducated. Or faith is for somebody who's broke and, and can't get money. Or faith is somebody who, who's sick. Let me say this to you. Faith, the Bible says, is for the righteous. Faith is for, the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not the broken. Not the sick. The righteous. It is the righteous that live by faith. It's not the unemployed. And faith is for every one of us to live by. You know, here's a theory I have. That if you want to live a fairly good life, you might not need faith. Because I've seen some people who, who have a fairly good life who don't need faith. But if you want to live a God life, you can't live that without faith. If, if your vision for your children is bigger than your income, if your vision for your marriage is bigger than your ability to fix it or to, to resolve the conflicts that are in there, that's when you need faith. Faith is for the dreamers. Faith is for people who know that, that, that my life is not just dependent on what I have and on who I am. Faith is living on the merit of Jesus, not on my own. That, that not everything I get, I get because I deserve. No, I get because Jesus deserves it. And that's living by faith. And so these guys needed an unreasonable faith in order for them to experience what they were going to experience. Unreasonable faith. Amen. Let me look at my notes now before I leave out some things that I would love to say. I want to give us these following scriptures. And all these are talking about the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11, and Hebrews 10, 18. They're talking about the righteous living by faith. And it's important that we do so in order for us to experience revival. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. There are few places in the Bible where, where the Bible says something is impossible with God. And having, not rather having faith is one of those. That, that God finds something impossible for him to do. It is only when one does not have faith in him. And so the righteous shall live by faith. And so the story continues anyway. The disciples decide to stay in Jerusalem. 
Now, they're staying in Jerusalem. Some scholars say that they stayed in the same upper room where they had their last supper with Jesus. Because remember, when they were going to Jerusalem, they did not have a place even to host Jesus. Jesus had to send them to this guy who, were, who was going to host them somewhere. It is assumed that these people were still staying in that place. Now, I don't know how much money this guy who was hosting Jesus had. But I don't believe in those days people could build mansions and big buildings. He may have just had a normal house. Now I'm thinking, how can 120 people be gathered in one place in the upper room? Like, how big was that place? Okay, two options. One, it may have been a big place, or they may have just been so squashed, and they're just staying there because Jesus said, wait for me. And here they are, they are waiting for Jesus. And, and all they can tell their families is that Jesus said, we are waiting, and we have an unreasonable faith, and we are waiting. And the Bible says, that, let's read uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, thanks, Billy. Acts chapter 2 from verse 1. I thought I would get into my Bible instead of reading on the fly, just to trick you. Uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now, I want you to note that a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, look. If you understand and get into his mind, you, you, it's fascinating. He's trying to describe the experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He uses the word as, as every time he describes the experience, what the disciples told him. He says, there came a sound like or as of a mighty rushing wind because he couldn't describe the actual sound that they heard. If you're writing now, write this down. Hearing a new sound. When you wait on God, and when you have an unreasonable faith, there's a new sound that you begin to hear. In the midst of adversity and challenges, there's a new sound that you begin to hear. When everybody around you is grumbling and complaining, when you have an unreasonable faith and you have been waiting on God, there's something other than what other people hear. There's, there's a new sound that you begin to hear. And I would say that sound is a sound of love. It's a sound that when I'm down, Jesus loves me. When I cannot afford it, Jesus loves me. When I don't deserve it, Jesus loves me. That he loves me anyway. In fact, Paul puts this sound this way. He says, I am so persuaded that, that, that neither death nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, 
nor depth, nor any other thing that is created can separate me from the love that God has in Christ Jesus. You begin to hear a sound of love. Why? Because you've been waiting on your faith in God. And I hear countless people, when everything around them is so negative, there's, just, there's a joy that comes out of them that is inexplicable. And you can just tell this is from God. They began to hear a new sound. And the Bible says, Then they saw things like tongues of fire falling on each one of them. Now, they didn't see tongues of fire, but things that looked like that. It was something new that none of them could describe because they had not experienced it before. It was a new sight, something new. And I believe that is a new thing that we're going to be seeing. And I call it a sight of hope. A sight of hope. A sight of hope. And I believe when we, when we wait on God and when we have an unreasonable faith, there's hope in our future. God speaks to Jeremiah in the midst of the challenges of the captivity and the midst of the disobedience that's going around. He says to them, I know the plans that I have for you. The plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. See, when, you, when, you, when you've been waiting on God, when you've been spending on God, or a time with God, and when you have that unreasonable faith, you begin to see things that other people can't see. A sight of hope. Where there's hopelessness, you begin to see hope. A sight of hope. And thirdly, the Bible says they began to speak in other tongues. Which I believe it's a declaration of a new thing. A declaration of glory. A declaration of glory. I want us to read Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter four. Verse thirteen. And it says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. You know when, when you look at the life of the apostles and the kind of revival life and culture that they lived? You wonder how did they manage to live such a life? I don't think a revival life is a life of healing. Alright? Because yes it can be. A life of healing is a life that indicates that something is wrong. I believe the life of revival for me is a surrendered life fully to Jesus. And a life that is reflective of his values and, and, and his, his, his personality, his person, his wish and will over our lives. That, that's the kind of life that I call a life of revival. And then as we live that life, then we can move into healing, we can move into miracles, and we can move into other things. The Bible says they believed and therefore they spoke. Here, here's what I, here's what I, I believe about, about speaking. God comes to Moses. Moses had had an experience with God. He had uh, uh, stricken the rock and water had come out of it. And here is Moses 
is on the verge again of doing the same thing, having the same experience. But because he wasn't so attentive to listening to what God was saying, God said to them, I want you this time to speak to the rock. Moses does not speak to the rock, but strikes the rock. Water still came out. But God said, because you have disobeyed my word, you will not get into the promised land. When, when we refuse to embrace the new thing and declare what God is declaring, instead we choose to rely on our past experiences to dictate what God will do moving forward. Yes, we bring forth results, but those results are destructive to our lives and our future. And so, yes, Moses brought water out of the rock, but that water disqualified him for the rest of his life from inheriting the promises of God. Sometimes when we refuse to declare what God is declaring, you know what we do? We formulate God. So we reduce our relationship with God to a particular formula that worked for us when we were 10, 20, and 13. And although that formula can work, but God is saying, I want you to declare a new thing. I want you to speak what I'm speaking. I don't want you to rely on your past experience to dictate how I move with you forward. I want you to see the new thing I'm doing and I want you to declare it. They began to speak in other tongues. In tongues that had never been spoken in before. It's important for us to hear the new sound and begin to declare it. And not rely on our past experiences to dictate what God would do moving forward. Because what that does then is that it gives us the results, but those results destroy us. Amen. They heard a new sound. Here's a new sound that I believe we are hearing in this season. It is a sound of restoration. It is a sound of breakthrough. It is a sound of healing. It is a sound of glory. When I say it is a sound, I'm saying you look at your situation and you declare glory over your situation. You look at your hopeless situation, you declare restoration into that. It is a sound of glory that we are declaring. We are declaring a sound as we are hearing God. We are not going back to our past experiences to resolve our current challenges. We are hearing what God is saying. Why? Because we have an unreasonable faith. And we have waited in God. Let's stand to us. Because we have an unreasonable faith. And we have waited in God. And as such, we are hearing a new sound. We are seeing a new thing. And we are declaring a new thing. I want you to look at your life. When I say you rely on your past experiences or you rely on your own resources to dictate what God would do in your situation. That is reducing God to a formula. Whereas God is God is bigger than your mind. And I believe God wants to do something new in each of our lives. 
the problem sometimes in church when you think of some when you say something new, somebody's thinking of something. No, something new is something you can't think about because it has never happened before. It is new. And so your response is in faith for God to do that something new. Maybe for you something new is is a part of your, your soul that is broken. Maybe that's something new for you. Maybe for another person something new is taking their business to a level that that it's never been before. That's a new thing. That is what God is doing. A new thing. He says to Isaiah, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not see? Can you not perceive it? That even in the wilderness, (laughs) I'm making ways even in places unimaginable, I am bringing things that only I can do. And so family, I want you to bring your situation before the Lord. Whatever it is. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we are coming before you with this unreasonable faith, calls us to see the new thing. Calls us to hear that new sound. And calls us to declare it over the nations, over our families, over the city, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Family, I believe living a life of revival outside of faith is impossible. And remember, faith is for the righteous. And whoever has given their life to Jesus Christ has been made righteous by Jesus and therefore has the right to live by faith. But if you are here and you have not given your life to Jesus, Perhaps you don't even know who Jesus is. Maybe you are invited here or you've been coming to church for a while. I want to invite you right now in this glorious friendship with Jesus. If you're there, I won't embarrass you. Just raise your hand. Just wave at me if you're there and you don't know who Jesus is. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your glory. Lord, we bless you this day. In Jesus' name. Come on, family. Let's give the Lord a round of applause. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.